Then he, Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his wife and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, Against her, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So there it is, verses 1 through 12, our first topic of the night marriage and divorce, and the context from the Old Testament, what was taught in the law, the Ten Commandments, plus in Deuteronomy, the expansion of the law, where God, through Moses, did permit divorce under various reasons, under one specific reason, infidelity, and Jesus clarifying these things, the purpose of marriage. This is a great passage. For a lot of reasons, it, it shows us God's best, his plan. So what we see in the context is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're constantly trying to get the people to turn against Jesus. The Pharisees feared the people and wanted to control the people. And Jesus is very popular with the people by and large. And the Pharisees, of course, that religious sect of Judaism of the Old Testament, felt very much threatened by him. So in verse 2, they try and pit Moses against Jesus or Jesus against Moses because any Jew worth his salt in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, is going to revere and honor Moses. Moses is who the Pharisees really revered as a person almost as a Messiah to them. And Jesus had already previously said to the Pharisees, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, but you've rejected Moses. And he even talked about the witness of Moses confirming that he, Jesus, is the Messiah promised by Moses, and they rejected that. But nonetheless, cunning, crafty men, they're trying to ensnare Jesus in his words, and this is going to go on right as we progress in this gospel, as we know, and to somehow get Jesus to say something that they can use against them, much like humanity does in our own society right now in larger scales of politics and entertainment and stuff like that. Make someone look bad, trap them in their words, and find something to use against them to turn public praise or public adoration against them. And we understand how that works in the human experience. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And it says clearly they were testing him. So they're not asking the question like, hey, I'm just wondering, can you give us insight on this? We're a little not sure about Deuteronomy 24. Can you shed some light? That's not the context. They're not asking because they want to be taught the answer. They're asking because they're testing, trying to trap. And so we need to take that context into account as we look at it. Jesus says, what did Moses say? So he takes him back to Moses and the law of the Old Testament. Now, verse 4 is quoting Deuteronomy 24, where God permitted divorce. It's noteworthy. He also said that a man is exempt from war and business the first year he's married so he can learn how to please his wife. So it's quite fascinating the full context where divorce was permitted for uh, sexual unfaithfulness to a spouse that God made clear that if that first year of marriage was really special and set apart from the husband, learn how to please his wife, that that would be a great foundation for a great marriage for their entire lifetime. That's worth noting in the context because they're only looking at 
is it lawful to divorce, but they don't even look at the positive, like what you can do in the first year of your marriage to really set yourself up for the blessings. And so often it's like that. We often look at like what we think God's keeping us from or what God wants to punish people for, as opposed to looking at what God wants to bless us with and what his best plan is and how good that plan is. That's often the human experience, and we know that. Their context is negative. Jesus takes their negative and makes it positive. So he says, verse 5, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. So there's no confusion. As Scripture interprets Scripture, as Jesus fulfills the Scriptures, he's interpreting properly what was meant by the permission of divorce. It's not according to God's first plan. It's plan B, because of the hardness of our heart. You can look at the entire human experience and, and look at the challenges of the human experience, whether it's in work, with your neighbors, in a society, all the different challenges of the human experience in any society, wars, conflicts, is because of the human heart. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and who can know it. Our heart, apart from being transformed by the Holy Spirit through faith in God, our heart's going to lead us astray. It's just, it's just a fact that we are self-centered and selfish without being born again to the Holy Spirit. We know that in Adam all sin and die, and we know the wages of sin is death. So left to ourselves, everything that we do apart from Christ, no matter how moral or good or great we think we are, we still have the fingerprints of death and the carbon trail of death from our life because sin reigns over us. We are subject and taken captive by the devil to do his will, and the grave will triumph over us. So before Christ, every human being is born in iniquity, manifests sin, and is a slave to sin. They're a slave to the devil, and they're a slave to the consequences of sin. But if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And we know that he promised it. We're told in 1 John that his death and resurrection on our behalf gives, defeats the devil, gives us victory over the devil and the grip of the devil on our life. And also his resurrection is our resurrection and his resurrection is our hope, a hope reserved in heaven that we'll see on Saturday in Colossians chapter 1. Our hope, a hope that's anchored to the soul. So when we pass from death to life, we really pass from being limited to ourselves in human relationships to being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live human relationships in the fullest extent that God has intended. But if we don't love the Lord our God, the first and great commandment, vertically through faith in Jesus, we cannot love our neighbor or anyone else as ourself according to God's will in how God designed human relations. Adam and Eve had an incredible relationship as the first man and first woman apart from sin, the way God intended it to be. But when sin entered, they, they went from a perfect marriage to an imperfect marriage. They went from a perfect household to an imperfect household. And we know that from the scriptures. So in Adam, all sin and die. But Jesus, the second Adam, gives us a chance. Now, some of us, when we think about marriages from our parents, or our grandparents, whatever, there might be a legacy of people getting married and staying married. And it's honorable. And people without the Lord that stay married for 50, 60 years, like the greatest generation, all those people born like in the 20s and the 30s. It's amazing what they did. But that's kind of the way society was. And people worked at it, and, and they made it happen. My grandparents lived, they were married for over 60 years. I did their 60th wedding anniversary renewal back in the 80s for my, my dad's parents, his mom and dad. Very honorable. They're church-going people, too. So it's honorable. Uh, we'd say God-fearing. I'm not, you know, eternities between them and the Lord, and that'll play out. It has played out for them, and I'll know personally soon enough. But at any rate, but we know that 
human relationships without Christ are prone toward conflict because we're prone toward selfishness. And that's what, in Philippians, we're told that to not look out for our own interests, but the interests of others. And see, this is the challenge of marriage because we need to die to ourselves and think of our spouse. And of course, Ephesians 5 tells us in the Christian marriage that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church, and the wife is to submit to her husband as the church is under the authority of the Lord. And that's the model. And that's the beauty of a Christian marriage, and that's the highest ideal of a marriage. So while all societies historically have esteemed the marriage of a man and a woman in the human experience... We're told for the Church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years that when a man and a woman who are born again in the Spirit come together in marriage, that they not only get to enjoy life in its fullest level, a restoration of what was lost for Adam and Eve was sin, because two people born again and alive in the Spirit, as they draw near to the Lord, they'll draw closer to each other, and we can go from glory to glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians. Our marriage can and should go from glory to glory. If the outward man is perishing and the inward man is being renewed for an individual in Christ, how much more so for a marriage? Though the outward husband, the outward woman is perishing, inwardly they're being renewed, and they should be going from glory to glory. In other words, the marriage should be getting better in Jesus' name the farther you go down the road in that marriage as the woman submits to her husband as unto the Lord and the husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church and gives himself for her. That is the highest ideal of marriage that God has, and it can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. That is the highest ideal. And then God takes that marriage and says, this is the plan for humanity. And as that Christian marriage glorifies the Lord, it demonstrates Christ and his love for the church, which we'll know for all eternity in the kingdom. Now, someone without the Lord being married without the Lord, they can't know that. They just, they can't, they don't have the resources Because in the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And the sacrificial love required for a man to love his wife as Christ loves the church to get past himself. And the love required for a woman to submit to her husband as the church is unto the Lord to get past herself is supernatural. And for all the love that the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve can have apart from the Lord, it is limited and it is affected by sin, bondage to sin, bondage to the devil, and the consequence of death hanging over the relationship. But in Christ, where all things are renewed and all things are made new, they are moving from glory to glory and it can get better. So see here tonight for Christian marriages, we have all the resources available to us to be the husband we're meant to be and be the wife we're supposed to be intended to be in God's highest plan that was lost in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they sinned, but is restored through faith in Jesus Christ, because if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation, and old things have passed away, and all things are new. So our marriages in Christ are going from glory to glory, because through the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, we can love our wives like Christ loves the church, and we can submit to our husbands as the church submits to the Lord, because our We love him because he first loved us in the relationship of a believer to the Lord. And in the same sense, when the husband loves the wife as Christ loves the church, then the wife can naturally trust in the husband as we trust in the Lord. That's the model that God gives us in his word. And it's beautiful. And of course, we're told in Ephesians 5, before they were told that wives submit to their husbands, that we all submit to one another. So we have the fullness of the context even beyond that. But there's order. There's order, and that's God's order. And it's beautiful. God's plan for marriage in the restoration of individual faith in God through Jesus Christ being born again in the Spirit and two people being born again in the Spirit to come together in marriage, that plan for marriage is the highest 
human experience possible for all humanity between a man and a woman. And it's God's very best. And it's there for every generation of the church age, and it'll be there for every generation of the church age until Christ sounds a trumpet for his church and then comes back with his church. The best marriages on the planet, the highest level from glory to glory that any marriage can have are found when two people, a man and a woman, are drawn near to Jesus Christ in their personal faith and to each other. And as they submit to the Holy Spirit in their lives, they will grow in that unconditional love in each of the roles they have in their marriage. That is God's ideal plan for marriage, and that's the highest intent. So when these guys come to Jesus and say, well, you know, Moses permitted divorce, they're so out of the stadium. They are so not in the ballpark. They're not even in the same time zone of God's glory and goodness. They're so out there because they're self-centered, selfish men who catch women in adultery and want to stone them with rocks until Jesus says, well, you're without sin. You can throw the first stone. That's where these guys are coming from. These guys are judging jury of everybody, including Jesus, Moses, the law, and God's standard for marriage. And all they see is a negative that allows them to put away women they don't want. And Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of heart that God permitted this. This is not as ideal. This is what, this is the second best. This is always the second best. It's not the way it was intended. In the beginning, how he created them, and so we are created. We're not evolved. We're created. God made us. You know, he spoke everything in existence, but he formed man and he formed woman. It's important to understand that. With the capacity to know him and worship him and, and have a relationship with him in a cognitive sense in mind, body, spirit, soul. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. And that's why it's so sad when human beings act like animals with their lives and their sexuality. And they debase God and they debase his plans and purposes and his glory for the man and the woman. How he made them male and female. There's XX and XY. That's how he makes them. And science, that's simple science. It's not complex science. That's how he made them. This passage where Jesus responds, Jesus tells us he affirms creation, the origin of man, with life and purpose and glory. Not so from the beginning. How have you, have you not read how he created them? Male and female. With purpose. Literal Adam Literal Eve. And the reason Christ came was because in Adam all sin and die. The second Adam, Jesus, died because the first Adam, who is the head of our race, from the very foundation of our DNA and who we are, he sinned and brought sin and death upon us in this entire universe. And that second Adam, Jesus, restores us. And that's why the genealogy for Jesus in the Gospel of Luke goes back to Adam. It doesn't go past Adam to some half man. It goes to Adam because he is the head of the race and he is the beginning of humanity. And that's, that's the way it is. And the beginning of humanity had an ideal for marriage. The man, the woman, created, origin, male and female, gender, marriage, male and female. It's all right there. This is what Jesus says in the red letters in the red letter Bible. So as societies would say, no, this is what marriage is. It's this or it's that. If it's anything less than God's plan, it, is, it can be marriage as the time, space, and matter wants to define it with any human government. But it's not marriage the way God intended it. So it's second best. It's less than. It's just another form of less than is what it is. Jesus is trying to elevate them to God's best, not settle for less than God's best. It's hard as you go through life trying to serve the Lord and you see people who time and time again settle for less than God's best instead of pursuing passionately all that God's best is. 
We see people pursue with so much passion that which is fleeting, passing, temporal, and death to themselves. And so few of the people, and, and narrows the way that leads to life and few enter thereby, who really passionately pursue and are all in the things of the kingdom. But the things of the kingdom are the best things. The things of the kingdom are the best things. This is the plan of humanity right here. It's not about Moses permitting divorce. It's about God's plan for creation for a man and a woman to be married and to be together and to live that life, that highest life that God intended, and to be an example of Christ in the church to every generation. Doesn't that make you excited to be married in Christ? It does me. And each marriage becomes this new generation of a family unit. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. When our son Luke moved to Florida two weeks ago with his wife, Belle, and our granddaughter, their daughter, which supersedes her being our granddaughter, I have to remind myself that, Clementine, that it's a good thing. I mean, our house is very empty right now because when he came back from college and they got married and they lived there, uh, it's Orange County, right? You know, we know how hard it is for people to live on, young couples to get started in Orange County. It's almost unimaginable unless they have really good income right out the gate. We understand that. They lived with us. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. There was never any drama or anything like that. But in the end, it's good for the man to leave with his wife and start their life. And that's what they did. They drove 3,000 miles, and Luke's got a, a place, a two-bedroom unit for him and his wife now and their, their daughter. He's got a job at Starbucks in Vero Beach. He starts this month in about a week. He's got a business plan, and he maybe even do some other adventures on his own. He's got a strong local church he's a part of. He's made the move, and he's, it's good for a man to leave his mom and dad and get on with life. And can I get a witness? Amen. It is. It's a good thing. It's, it's a good thing. And that's the way it's meant to be, because... That family needs to, to begin to distinguish their generation and their calling and find their own traction. And they need to live the human experience, even as my wife and I lived our human experience when we left our families and began our life together as a husband and a wife in Vista and then in Virginia and then in Vermont. We had lessons we need to learn as we learned together, husband and wife. Even so, our adult children need to learn them. When our daughter Hannah moved 3,000 miles to see if she was supposed to be married to Nate Gallagher, our son-in-law, she said, well, I think you should come here and court me. I'm like, well, yeah, except you're going to marry him and be joined to his calling. He's not joining you to your calling. He's, you're joining him to his calling. That's God's order. So if he's meant to be your husband, then you got to move back to Florida and you got to do that. And she graduated Vanguard, moved to Florida, got her own apartment, got her own place, carved out her life and became a part of that church. And he courted her. And then it came to a point where basically Either he's going to put the question forth or Hannah's coming home. I didn't say it. She said it. And then he asked her to, to marry him. And they've been married now, I believe it's five years, if I'm correct. And they serve the Lord together in Vero Beach, Florida. And we'd love to have our daughter here. But she's not called to be with us. She's called to be by her husband's side in his calling. And his calling's in Vero Beach, Florida. And I come up with plans every three months how to bring Nate Geller back here, put him on staff, and do all these wonderful things with him, and have the kid, have her here. And, I was like, and, and it's like, no, not my will, but thy will be done. And I, have, I pray that every day, right? So that's, he's super fruitful. They're super fruitful. I see a post today of my daughter, Hannah, teaching the women's ministry at Vero Beach, teaching from the book of Joshua. I'm like, that's the way it's supposed to be. We miss our daughter. But our daughter belongs to the Lord. We raised her to serve the Lord. She was set apart to the Lord. And she is Nate Gallagher's wife serving the Lord together in Vero Beach, Florida. And I wish I could 
go to Portola every weekend with Hannah or go here or there or Peach or whatever and do all the things with our daughter that we'd want to do that we do when she's here. But we don't because that's not God's plan. And we accept that. God's plan, she wasn't given to us for us. She was given to us to be turned back to be directed to the Lord that she'd serve the Lord. So for this cause, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and do two become one. It's just the way it is. And that's where the blessings are. The blessings are always in obeying the word and trusting it. Now, what God has joined together, verse 9, let no man separate because the two are one. You know, there's nothing else where the two are one. There's no one of covenant like marriage. There's just nothing like it. There, there's nothing comparable to it apart from a personal faith in Christ and having the covenant with the Lord in your own walk. There's, just, there's no relationship. I tell people I'm in a covenant with my wife and I had stewardship of children. A lot of people can call me pastor, but only four people call me dad. But only one person calls me their husband, at, you know, in our journey. And that's the way it is. Now, people get remarried for various reasons. People die. Jeremy Camp was a widower at 23 and married his second wife, who's, who's Addie, who's amazing. And uh, he's lived a wonderful life. You know, his, his first bride died four months in their marriage. There's different things that happen. People get divorced for various reasons. We see that happen. We know the biblical reasons for divorce are infidelity, or if you're married to a non-believer and they don't want to be with you and they leave you, then you're released from that marriage. Those are the two, two reasons. We know people get divorced for a lot of other reasons. And, I, and I'll say this, like early on in ministry, 31 years ago, being a pastor, I'd be like, I can't believe those people got divorced. But you know what I think when, after 31 years of marriage and 31 years of ministry, not my marriage, but 31 years of ministry in the human experience, I'm more surprised by people still being married as opposed to not being married because we are selfish. It's not divorce that surprises me. It, what, what blesses me is people still being married 30 years later. Because that, that requires putting other people first. And, and as you observe things from ministry and pastoral perspective, you see where people, people get divorced early because they just decide they don't want to live with that person in the first five years. People get divorced within 15 years because they think the grass is greener somewhere else on the other side. Usually they have kids. That's where you get the split families, blended families, and all that kind of stuff. And then people get divorced between 25 and 30 years because the kids have left, and they, and they don't want to be married anymore, not because they want to be with someone else. They just don't want to be with you. That's what happens. I figured that out when I was on staff at Calvary. When I was on staff at Calvary between 2000 and 2005, a lot of those people that got married in the 70s in the Jesus movement, their kids grew up, they graduated, they got married, and they moved away. And I had a, a different sets of couples come to me that were older, like the age that I am now, and they're empty nesters, and they're talking about getting divorced. And I'd be like, well, why? Why would you get divorced here? You know, it's like a mile, and you've gone three times around the track. Why would you get divorced now? They're ringing the bell. It's like, now's the time to find another gear. I'd just be, I'd be like, well, you know, he does this, and she, you know. I'd be like, look, literally there was a couple that I said, wait, you were the star quarterback? Yeah. And you were the, the, the homecoming queen? Yeah. Well, you guys fell in love. You love each other. You love each other right now. Look at each other. You love each other. Why are you in here? Why are, you, why are we even doing this? We're in the sanctuary of Costa Mesa. Why are we even talking about divorce right now? You guys got saved in the tent. What, what are you even talking about? Why are we even having this conversation? Think about what you're saying. Upward, it's forward, onward, and upward with the Lord Jesus Christ. Get on with it. I literally, actually, it was, they looked at each other like they agreed they weren't sure I was the right guy, but at least they went away happy. True story. They did. I literally said, you were the starting quarterback and you were the homecoming queen? Why are you here? Why are you here? You guys loved each other so much. Would not Christ make your love deeper and stronger on the back end than the beginning? Is not the latter wine better than the first wine? 
Humble yourself, put each other first, keep the Lord first, and be blessed. And that's how it has to be. Now, people get divorced, as I said. Divorce is very painful. When my mom and dad got divorced, who knows who divorced who, whatever. It just just, uh, was was horrible. It was hard to watch. And I've seen where divorce is so painful. And some of you here in this room have been divorced. Maybe you're the victim of divorce. Maybe you initiated divorce. There's, there's always two sides of everything. Again, early on in ministry, if you're like, oh, you know, you learn early on. A rookie mistake for pastors is to let one spouse leverage the pastor against another spouse. Because when someone's leaving someone, they like to get the minister's approval. That's a rookie mistake for anyone in ministry, especially young ministers. Well, Pastor Joey said that you should do this. I'm like, hey, I'm not going home and babysitting you. I'll teach you the word and you go live it. And if you live it, you live it. If you don't, you don't. I got my plate full with my own life and my own responsibilities. We'll all stand before the Lord, each one of us, for, and give an account for our usage of time, our faith in the Lord, how we treated our spouse, how we raised our children, how we treated our neighbors. I mean, that's, that's the order of accountability on the day of Christ Jesus, in case you haven't thought that through. That's how it's going to play out based upon the totality of Scripture. So I don't blame any, I don't condemn anyone for divorce. Divorces, these guys are like, Wait a second, explain this divorce thing again. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, that's the way it is. If this is, the, if this is divorce, that's divorce, that's adultery. It doesn't mean it can't be forgiven. It just means it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect your life, you know. And our God is the God of second chances. And I praise the Lord for people who have gone through divorce and been remarried. And I rejoice for them and the lives they have together. And I, I've got a good friend who is a, a good man. He was a deacon in the church in Virginia Beach. And he went through divorce and they had a, a child together. And it was a very hard thing for him. It was crippling to his whole life. He almost just lost the will to live and just encouraged him and encouraged him. And uh, eventually when we'd gone out, I'd gone out door to door sharing the gospel with people and inviting people to church. One of the people that came to church was a woman who became his second wife. And they loved the Lord and been serving the Lord for over 25 years now. And um, we're in touch with them. They've actually visited Worship Generation about three years ago. God is a God of second chances. So if that's your story, we can't change yesterday. I mean, April 1st is already behind us. We're looking at April 2nd today and April 3rd tomorrow. And that's pretty much, that's it, you know? And um, as much as up to us, we want to do good, do what's right, make things right. And some things, they just, some relationships, they can't, they just can't be fixed, whatever. People got remarried, they did this. It's just, it is what it is. And uh, we go forward in Jesus. But on the front end of these things, this is the ideal. And there should be no misunderstanding about that. We pick it up in verse 13. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child by no means enter it. And he took them up to his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. A very well-known passage for most of us, Jesus blessing the little children. I'll draw your attention to two things before we move on from this text. It says in verse 14 that he was greatly displeased. You know, you don't read that often that Jesus was greatly displeased, let alone with the apostles. He was greatly displeased with the apostles. That, that tells me that Jesus puts a very high premium on the value of children, how we treat children. And I learned early on in ministry that if you really want to gauge the ministry of a man or a woman is see how children are in their presence if children are comfortable and welcome in their presence. 
Because in ministry, people come like, hey, I feel called to do this, and I feel called to do that. Uh, okay, fair enough. But then you see how they are with kids. Do they make time for kids? Are kids comfortable in their presence? Because if you can't lead the lambs, you cannot lead the sheep. Because the lambs are always the next generation. So you've got to be able to lead the lambs before you can lead the sheep. They go together. Because lambs become sheep. Tend the flock. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, and feed my lambs. It's a total package. It's really important that we look at children and we see potential, we see the future, we see hope, we see a better tomorrow for the kingdom of God than the day that we have today. That's what children remind us of. When I see the kids run around here or up here on the stage after service or in the bounce house the other night or the slide and all that, and with my grandkids, I'm just reminded there's, there is the potential for a better future because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a potential for a better future. That the best day in church history is not April 2nd, but it could be April 3rd. Because God's best can always be in front of us through faith in him. Because his promises are not yes and no. They're yes, yes, or no, no. But they're not yes and no. And the great things he's done in the past are great to study. But I look at my grandkids and I think, Lord, greater things for them in the future for the church of Jesus Christ. I don't see myself on this planet in 2061 because I'd be 100 years old in 2061. But if the Lord tarries, I see my grandkids on this planet and I see them being faithful and fruitful and bearing much fruit for the kingdom of God as they move toward fulfilling their destiny and their journey in the human experience. And that's there. So the children need to have a special place in our heart because they represent the future and they remind us that God gives us a future and a hope. But also he said that we need to receive the kingdom like a child. The word received there is very important. Those who do not receive it. The Christian faith, of course, is the most reasonable and intelligent faith of anything. You have to believe either we came from a rock that came to life or that God, who exists outside of this dimension, made this dimension with design and order, which everything in provable science proves design and order. Or dumb luck from a rock coming to life. And I've never seen a Lego come to life, and I could put those Legos in my backyard for centuries and centuries. They're just going to be... They're just going to be Legos that don't come to life. That's just the way it is. So there's only two worldviews. Either dumb luck and rocks come to life or God of order and design set everything in order and design the way it is. And what's wrong with order and design is a result of our father Adam bringing sin into the universe, which the Bible declares he did. Those are the only two choices. There's just two worldviews are conflicting. One is life. One is death. One is disorder and chaos. The other is order, design, and purpose. So... Childlike faith simply says, I believe God made it, he spoke it, and that settles it, and it'll serve you very well. It'll serve you very well, and God, God will take you as deep as you want to go with him, and if you want to have a conversation with God, like, I just don't think this is right, or this and that, then you can converse with him like Job does in the book of Job, and God's like, hey, where were you when I made the constellations? Where were you when I did this, and I made dinosaurs, and all this stuff, and Leviathan, and all this stuff? What do you have to say about that? You got nothing to say about it. I'm God, you're not. You need to trust me. That's the book of Job. Chapters 34 through 40. And then Job said at the end of the book, hey, I, before I knew about him, now I know him. I know him. God is good. And God is good all the time. Most of the brightest minds in the history of humanity, particularly the last 2,000 years, and particularly the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, all the major fathers of science, all the great arts, these are men and women who had faith in Jesus Christ. And I can't tell, tell you how many of these great men and women who have shaped the world and made the world a better place, they did so because of their faith in God's creation, his redemption, design, and order. 
The chaos of the last 150 years is people like Freud, Darwin, Marx, Stalin, Trotsky, Lenin, Hitler. That's the chaos that people bring when they believe they came from a rock and their agnostic, atheistic, naturalistic, humanistic worldviews. That's what they bring upon humanity. They lord over humanity. It is the God divine order that we can trust in like a child trusting their parents that our God is a good God. There is no shadow of turning with our God and him is light and life. And he's the God of light. It's that simple. And I look at our kids, our grandkids, how they trust us when we take care of them, let alone their mom and dad when they take care of them. And that childlike faith, that, that serves us well. It will it'll serve us well from our earliest age to the end. I've said this many times. It's not the difficult things of God that give me trouble. It's the easy things. Just su- submitting to the Holy Spirit in our life and fulfilling the Ten Commandments in the human relationships, that will keep you busy. Forgiving, letting go, not being bitter, not being malicious, giving people room to grow, being gracious and merciful and compassionate. The obvious stuff will keep you busy. It says in the Old Testament, in the law, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to the Lord. As for God, his ways are above our ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways. The problem with mortal, flawed, sinful men trying to figure out God is they have a, an improper compass for comprehension, morality, and reality. We're flawed. Our ability to understand the things of God, who's a perfect creator, from our mortal, imperfect, sinful position is inept and unable. It is only through the illumination of the Holy Spirit by which we can be brought to life and understand the things of the kingdom. So when the Holy Spirit convicts you and convicts me and our generation of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that is a childlike faith that will bring us to Christ. For as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God who are not born of flesh or blood or the will of men, but born of God. That childlike faith serves you really well. When you're holding your dead son in your arms, it holds you really well. When you're carrying your dead mother-in-law out of the house at four in the morning, it serves you really well. When you're trying to explain how you have reproduction, the human experience with your kids, it serves you really well. When you're ministering to your elderly parents who don't know what year it is, it serves you really well. Jesus is on the throne. Serves you really well in every human experience. On the glorious day, and on the most difficult day. He loves the children, and our faith is to be as simplistic as the children. Oh, he'll go as deep as you want to go with him. But the older you get, and the farther you get from your temporal, earthly, human glory, the more you realize you end up just the way you began. Someone taking care of you, unable to go to the bathroom on your own, needing people to help you through things, and that childlike simple faith that you had as a child that brought you to faith, or even as an adult that brought you to faith, that faith is what's going to carry you. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That'll save you when you're two, and it'll cover you when you're 102. Let God be true, and every man a liar. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Verse 17, now as he was going out the road, one came running to him, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus 
looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is that story that's recorded for us in the other gospels, the synoptic gospels, Luke and Matthew as well. Draw your attention to verse 17 where the man says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He also in the other Gospels, we're told, he says, what good thing shall I do? It's interesting because the previous passage, verse 15, said, whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child by no means enter it. But this guy says, what shall I do that I may inherit it? Isn't that a contrast, right? Childlike faith receiving the kingdom. By grace, you've been saved. That through faith, not of works. Or the pride of men, the works of the flesh. What good thing will I do, good teacher, that I can earn eternity, that I can earn eternal life. This guy might as well be speaking for every world religion and every human philosophy. Well, Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he's like, oh, I've done all these things. There were all the, uh, what we call the horizontal commandments, horizontal relationships. They weren't vertical regarding God. No other gods before the Lord, not using his name in vain, honoring the Sabbath, no idols. They were horizontal, human relations. He's like, oh, I've done all these things since my youth, verse 20. And Jesus looked at him he loved him. Isn't that good to know? That's a detail that Mark gives us. Jesus was moved with love toward this guy. He's like, man, this guy, he, there's, there's so much potential for this guy. Like, this guy's like a sharp guy. This guy would start up his own business and be super successful. He's like an Orange County startup guy. He could get the investors. He's the rich young ruler. He's, he's, he's got it, man. This guy, it's like, and he really, he cares about spiritual things, but he's based upon himself and what he can do. And Jesus loved him, but Jesus exposed him. Because he said, one thing you lack. He exposed his idolatry, that the man loved riches more than the Lord. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve two masters, you'll love one and hate the other. And you can play the religion show all you want, but God knows our heart. And if we have an idol before him, mammon being wealth was this man's idol. That's why the one thing could be something different for everybody. The one thing could be let go of that dream or your God of education or whatever it might be or whatever you think it is. The one thing could be many different things for anyone, but that one thing, it only, the devil knows it only takes one thing to keep you from all things that God has for you. It just takes one thing to keep you from all things God has for you. So all he has to do is catch you with one thing. And in this case, the one thing is the man's possessions. So Jesus exposes what's the one thing. You got to let go of the one thing. The one thing that keeps Christ from being supreme in your life is, is that form of idolatry. I remember 1989 when the Lord really called me out to let go of surfing. And at that time, I still really enjoyed surfing. I was still a very good surfer. And there was a very clear day, a definitive day in my life, where the Lord was like, you need to let this go because it's holding back the ministry, what I have for you and the things I want to do in your life. That one thing was surfing. And I did let it go. And my wife is my witness. I let it go and had very little to do with surfing for over a decade. If I was into surfing, you wouldn't, if you're into surfing, you don't move to Burlington, Vermont, just so you know. Let's make that really clear. There's a lake and it is flat as a lake, okay? It's not an ocean. And the Lord called me to let go of that one thing. And we have to ask ourselves tonight as we wrap it up right here, is there one thing that's keeping us from all the blessings that the Lord has for us? It can be a pursuit, it can be a relationship, it can be a dream. We're told to delight ourselves in the Lord and he'll give us the desire of our hearts. So we understand from Psalm 37, 4, that if we're seeking the Lord and keeping him first, he'll, he'll put on our heart what he wants to do. 
And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. It, it really is about not us trying to convince God to do the one thing we think he should do, but it's really about us letting go of all things that will be open and available to do all the things that he wants to do in our life. Because that one thing will keep us from everything. So let me say that again. That one thing that is not subject to the Lord is the very thing that can keep us from everything that the Lord has for our life. And this rich young ruler is the warning and the example that it just takes one thing, just one thing, one thing. And as you go forward in the Lord, year after year, from glory to glory, you'll find that he'll, he'll bring one thing out. <laughs> like, hey, we got that thing, good. And then like a year later, he'll be like, hey, let's get this thing. Because we think it's just this one thing, and like once I quit surfing in 1989, I've arrived, right? No, no, there's many things. Forgiving those people for this thing and asking forgiveness from these people for what you did with that thing. I mean, that one thing is whatever it is that God wants to deal with in your life today that's keeping the fullness of the power and the glory from your life. That one thing. It was just one thing. Isn't it amazing when you really think about it? It's just one thing. He said, one thing you lack. He said he loved him. He looked at him with love and he said, one thing you lack. Just one thing. So as we go our way tonight, I would encourage us to think about, Lord, please let there be one thing that keeps us from all your promises, all your power, all your purposes. Let us not hold back anything. Let us not be distracted by anything. Let us be the good soul that produces 30, 60, 90, 100 fold. Let us be all things. Let us embrace all things of the Lord. Let us become all things that we might win people to Christ. Let all of our lives be in the Lordship of Christ. That one thing, when the Holy Spirit tells us this is the thing that's keeping you back from the greater purposes I have for your life, we need to let go of that thing. And when Jesus called men and women, he called them to his supremacy over their life. We're going to see in Colossians on Saturday night, he's over everything. He's a preeminent one. So tonight, if you sense there's one thing and you think, it's just one thing? Don't underestimate how that one thing will keep you from everything. He said, you let go of the one thing, you will have treasure in heaven. That one thing that you let go of becomes treasure in heaven. And you take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. And this man went away sad because he had great possessions and he wasn't willing to just release those things. You know, when you can release things, God will give them back to you. Or more. We're going to see that next week when we come back to this passage where we pick it up with Peter. But you let go of things. Like Paul said, I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I've learned contentment with many things or nothing. We need to learn those lessons. That when you let go of the one thing, then you're open up for all things. But that one thing, that would be the thing that keeps you back from all things and everything. That's the lesson of this rich young ruler. And we don't have to lose it all. To learn this lesson, we can learn from him.